Amen. So Acts chapter 7, we'll read the entire chapter. Acts chapter 7. Yeah. Acts chapter 7. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he, this is Stephen talking, and he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved, uh, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give to him, uh, promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way. Uh, I just lost my place. But God spoke to him in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would uh, bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised them on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money uh, from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near which God had sworn to Abraham the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph these men uh, this man dwelt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers making them expose their babies so that they might not live at that at this time Moses was born and was well pleasing to God and he was brought up in his father's house for three months but when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up in her, as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brother and the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that the brethren would have understood, or understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? 
But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared uh, to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe the voice of the Lord, came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had uh, shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. For this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. And God turned and gave them up to, the, to worship the host of heavens. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also look, uh, took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, uh, Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land of promise by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always reject or resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. 
He, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's a radical chapter. It's a, it's a great chapter here. In Acts chapter 6, we are introduced to this man called Stephen. And uh, you recall that there were certain concerns regarding uh, certain widows being neglected in a daily distribution. And the apostles wisely saw the need to raise up men to come alongside them, to help them in the ministry, to be part of, uh, you know, participating in the practical ministry. And the apostles knew they couldn't take care of every need themselves. Not only would that not be good, it wouldn't be healthy. And not only that it wouldn't be good and not healthy, you know, it wasn't what God called them to do because it would take them away from what they were called to do. And that was to uh, give themselves to the study of the word and to prayer. You know, and the apostles needed help to minister to the people. And as we looked at these things, you know, a few weeks ago, you might recall that we noted that the church as a whole, but more specifically, uh, just ministry, it's not intended by God to be a spectator sport. You know, it's God's heart that each and every one of us would be involved in the ministry within the church. God wants to raise each of us up, you know, in an area of ministry within the body. Uh, and again, a healthy body is when every part you know, every person is working together, fulfilling their purpose. Well, the apostle said, and you can turn back and look at it, Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, look at it and read it with me. Uh, they said, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. And then in verse 5, we read, that this saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And then they also chose Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, it says. Stephen was a man who saw a need, heard the call, and he was willing to serve. He was full of faith. He was faithful. Uh, he was full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. And he was a man of good reputation. And, and you look down in verse 8, chapter 6. It says, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So we asked the question last time that we were together. Hey, where did, Philip, uh, where did Stephen get his faith? Where did the power that worked in his life come from? And if you weren't here and maybe you're watching online um, and, uh, you know, uh, again, because we don't have internet for the people that are online, we don't have internet. We won't be able to project the verses. 
we apologize for that, but um, we're working on it. But anyway, if you weren't here, you weren't able to be part of that study two weeks ago, I encourage you to go back to the website and watch that study. Well, just as you can expect in your life, you know, there's going to be opposition when God begins to work in and through your lives. And Stephen was confronted. He was attacked. They seized him. They set him before the Sanhedrin. And they accused him falsely of speaking against the temple and against the law of Moses. These are the things that the Jews held as sacred. And as we come to Acts chapter 7 now, we're looking at the defense that Stephen offers before the Sanhedrin. That's Acts chapter 7. And that would be the title of this message, Stephen's Defense. And it says in verse 1, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to land I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And this is such a beautiful, Stephen's defense is so beautiful. When you look at it, kind of take this broad view of it. He begins his defense with the glory, uh, the God of glory. And he ends his defense with the glory of God. He begins with God appearing to Abraham in Mesopotamia, and he ends with seeing Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. I mean, Stephen's defense, when you look at it, when you study it, it's actually quite brilliant. He begins with Abraham, the father of faith, right? Who, I mean, Jews don't really like to hear this, but the reality is Abraham at this time When he's called, he's an idol-worshiping Gentile. That's who he is. And he's in Ur of the Chaldeans, right? And he was told to leave his country, to leave his family, to leave his father and follow God to land that God would show him. So the question I think is important to ask, what did Abraham do? I think at this time, his name is Abram. You know, what did he do? Did he obey God? No. He actually didn't, right? What he did was he took his wife, and instead of getting away from his family and getting away from his father, his father's house, what does he do? He scoops up his dad, he grabs his nephew Lot, and he, instead of following the Lord into the land of Canaan, he just moves upriver to Haran, right? God had called Abraham to forsake his former life. And follow him, becoming a pilgrim in this world, right? 
It's actually the same call that he places on each one of our lives. Right? We're called to follow him. And we're called to renounce, be willing to renounce every earthly attachment for him. And we need to be obedient to that call. Right? To live a life being led by him. You know, a life that's not static. Right? Uh, you know, a life that's always moving forward, always growing in our relationship with him. Abraham didn't fully obey God. He didn't leave his country. He didn't leave his father. He didn't leave his family and follow God. You know, again, what he did was just moved up river a little bit to Haran. And Haran represents wasted time in Abraham's life. Because he wasn't fully obedient. It was just wasted time. There's no mention of any revelation uh, from God during his time there in Haran. We don't read of the Lord speaking to Abraham at all during this time in Haran. And it's not until his dad dies, some years later, that he gets moving again. You know, whenever we put our pursuit of God, or our obedience to God in park, you know, it's just a waste of time. It, it just results in emptiness in our lives. It's a period devoid of any revelation of God. The Bible characterizes the life of a believer as a walk. It speaks of our life as a, a, a as a race that we're to run. And that race is an endurance race, right? It's not a sprint. And it's vital for us as Christians to remember that this world is not our home, right? The earth is not our final destination. Heaven is our destination. And we can never lose sight of that. We need to constantly and continually be following after the Lord on a daily basis, hourly basis, minute by minute basis. We must adopt the same attitude that Abraham had throughout his pilgrimage here on earth. In Hebrews 11, 10, it, it tells us, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In other words, his focus after he got moving again was on heaven, right? He lived for eternity. And that's where our focus needs to be continually. Stephen continues in verses 6 through 8 and recounts how God spoke to Abraham's descendants that they would go into bondage for 400 years. But afterwards, God promises to bring them out, returning them to the land where they would serve the Lord. And that is always the result. Listen, if you don't understand this, you need to pay attention. That's always the result. The Bible always puts forth service as the appropriate response to deliverance and healing. And then in verse 9, we read, And the patriarchs became envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a, a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers had no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers out, sent out our fathers first. And the second time, 
Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham uh, bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the, the father of Shechem. So in this section now, Stephen deals with the bondage of Egypt, right? He speaks of uh, how the house of Israel got to uh, Egypt. And he highlights the envy and the hatred that the brothers had for Joseph. And he's painting a picture of Jesus through the life of Joseph now. That's what he's doing. Joseph is this remarkable type or picture of Jesus found in the book of Genesis. Joseph's brothers, Stephen says, acted out of envy. And the religious leaders uh, of Israel delivered Jesus to Pilate because of envy, the, the Bible says. Joseph was hated by his brothers because of the dreams he told them about regarding his future glory. Uh, when Jesus spoke of returning to the Father, sitting at the right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven, the priest, the high priest, he tears his clothes. I mean, they began to spat, spit on Jesus and they beat him. You talk about hatred. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver. Well, Jesus was betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph was punished for sins he did not commit. And then we know Jesus, the sinless one, the Messiah, was punished, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world, for your sins and for mine. Joseph was miraculously freed from prison, exalted over the entire nation of Egypt, uh, Stephen reminds them. And Jesus miraculously rose from the grave, exalted high above all things. I mean, when you get into the study of Joseph's life, there's over a hundred different pictures or illusions of Jesus in his life, just like these. And Stephen reminds the Jewish religious leaders that Joseph was rejected initially. And in verse 13, we see that it was at his second coming, so to speak, that he was received by his brothers. It's the same picture uh, uh, that is of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of Joseph as a type of Jesus Christ. I mean, they're just amazing when you get into that portion of Scripture. And Stephen continues in verses 17 with Israel's bondage and Moses, the deliverer, deliverer of Israel. It says verse 17, but when the time of the prophecy drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. And, and you know, just before we go any further, I think that this is important to notice. Maybe you've seen this kind of thing before, but it says, but when the time of the promise drew near. You know what? May we never forget that God has a divine timetable for everything, for our lives included. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Romans 5, 6 says, For when we were still without strength, 
In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And if you take a look at Peter, uh, don't bother turning there right now, but maybe later in, in your study, take a look at Peter, 1 Peter 1.20. He said, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. You know, listen, whatever it is that you're facing, no matter how difficult or hard it may be, you know, God is at work and he will always deliver us from all of our troubles. The Bible promises that. Well, it says in verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. You know, how interesting is that? It says that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. The reason why I think that's interesting is because if you'll recall back to Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, Moses with the burning bush, Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, right? Neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm sl slow of speech. He even stutters probably. And then and, 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 and slow of tongue, you know? But hey, he was mighty in word and deed. He really was. It's been said that Moses' life can be divided into three 40-year periods. Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in the courts of Pharaoh, learning that he was something, learning that he was a big deal, you know, a big man, an important man. And then God took him into the desert for 40 years, where he learned that he was really nothing to speak of, nothing of all at all, really. Then God used him for 40 years to show the world that God could do something big with what was really nothing at all. And God, the reason why he did that in Moses' life, is the same reason he wants to do it in our life. He wants humble men and women, ordinary people, right? People who won't touch his glory in order to use them to turn this world upside down for his kingdom. It's what he wants to do um, in our lives. The same thing he did with Moses. He wants to do that same type of thing in our lives, in your life and in mine. And in verse 23, it says, now when, the 40, now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brother and the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he approached two men, uh, two of them, as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you, you're brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who 
uh, did his neighbor wrong, pushed him away and said, who made you a ruler and judge over us? You know, Moses thought that the people would understand, but they didn't understand. Luke 19, Jesus tells those who were upset with him for having lunch with Zacchaeus, right? He tells them a parable about a nobleman uh, who went into a far country. You know, it was a parable of the minus. And he mentions to them that the citizens hated that ruler, hated him, and declared, we will not have this man rule or reign over us. When the religious leaders, the very men that Stephen are not, is now talking to, delivered up uh, Jesus to Pilate, you remember what they said, right? They said, away with him, away with him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And Stephen's pointing out to them right now, just as Moses was rejected as deliverer and savior, so too these religious leaders had rejected Jesus as their deliverer and savior. And verse 28 says, do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at the saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flaming fire in a bush uh, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Now, you know what? I think it's important to notice verse 30. It says, and when 40 years had passed. Have you ever, have you ever noticed how God sums up this, in, this period of time in just a short sentence? Sometimes he sums it up with a comma or a period, right? And I think... You know, what happens, I think we often assume that the lives of these men that God used in the Bible, you know, we, we kind of imagine that there's always something going on. I mean, they're living this fast-paced life, one miracle right after another, a life of constant revelation from God. You know, God um, continually speaking to them and then leading them into radical events. You know, and I think that with that assumption on our part, the devil comes in and often tries to confuse or condemn us by saying, hey, listen, if the Bible's true or if God really loves you, hey, how come he's not talking to you? How come he's not doing lots of cool things in your life? You know, radical things day after day like he did in the lives of the guys of the Bible. But what we need to understand is, you know what? The devil's a liar. We can never forget that. I, I love what Dennis Zuck, uh, was it Dennis Zuck? I think it was Dennis, the magician. He came, says, how do you know if the Bible or the devil's lying? He's talking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a great, it's a great thing to remember. <clears throat> you know, God does speak to us. He speaks to us on a daily basis. That's the reality of it. He speaks to us every time we pick up the Bible, right? But often it's a still small voice, right? And we need to be listening. We need to take the time to get alone with him, to quiet our hearts, right? We need to listen in readied obedience and surrender, as far as miracle goes, miracles go, he's doing them all the time. 
right? He provides for you, doesn't he? Man, he loves you. That alone, I mean, take a look in the mirror. That alone, the fact that he loves you is a miracle of miracles. You know, <laughs> you need to understand that the guys in the Bible experienced God in the same way that we do. By faith, right? By being disciplined and putting a priority on seeking him. Being in the word and seeking his face in prayer. Hebrews eleven six says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Right? If you're not hearing from the Lord, maybe you just need to consider how you're seeking to hear from him. I mean, is it God on demand? You know? Or is it you getting alone with him, quieting your heart and letting him speak to you? Whatever's on his heart. You know, while you're listening with a determined obedience to whatever it is that he wants to say to you. If you don't see him doing things in your life, is it because you don't wait on him? Are you trying to make things happen in your own timing? Or is it that you're not really looking closely to see what it is that he's doing? And you know what? I would challenge each of us here to seriously consider if God's speaking to you now. Is this something that God is speaking to you? And if he is, you know what? Confess the wrong attitude, the wrong approach, and make a change. Begin to seek him with a deliberate and determined obedience. In verse 31, it says, And when Moses saw us, again, it's speaking of the burning bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled, dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now I will send you to Egypt. You know what? Every place in my Bible, literally every place in my Bible where it says that God sees or that God hears, where it says that God speaks, it's all marked and underlined. You know, I did that. I do that because I continually want to be reminded that God is always seeing the situation that I'm facing. He's always listening and hearing every prayer of mine. And you know what? He knows my heart, right? In my mind, people all too often say, hey, where's God in all of this? You know, why isn't he working? The truth is God is working. He's always working. But he often works in ways that you may not fully understand this side of heaven. God was doing a work while Israel was in bondage for 400 years. Right? He was giving the inhabitants of the land of Canaan time to repent of their sins. It was merciful. He was giving the nation of Israel an opportunity to grow. Had the 75 people gone into the land of Canaan, man, they would have been absorbed and there would be no Israel. Right? We need to allow our heart to be comforted by the fact that God is at work. 
We need to allow that truth to comfort us. And we need to remind ourselves of it often, if not daily. God sees your situation. He hears your prayers. You can rest assured he will come to your rescue. Trust him to come at the right time, in the fullness of time, to deliver you. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Now, Stephen points out that it's been Israel's track record to initially reject the one God has sent to deliver them. They rejected Joseph, uh, failing to recognize God's deliverance through him until they saw him a second time. And they did the same thing with Moses. And as a result of the rejection of Moses, he went away into a foreign country. And while he was gone there, right, the nation of Israel had to endure just greater and greater suffering. Moses' heart was to free them from bondage, right? And that's Jesus' stated purpose. When Jesus was in the synagogue in Nazareth to teach, they handed him the book of Isaiah. You remember the story. And Jesus found the place there and read. Uh, we read this story in Luke 4, 18 and 19. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And after Jesus handed the book back to the attendant, he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the religious leaders, they were filled with wrath and they took him to the edge of the city in order to kill him. You know, and John, the apostle John, he writes in his gospel, John 1, 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him, right? Isn't it interesting if you're familiar with this prophecy of Hosea? Isn't it interesting what Hosea said? Hosea 5, 15, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense, till they will seek my, uh, then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. You know what? Israel rejected Jesus. They rejected their Messiah. But Israel will be brought back into a place of blessing again. Zechariah 12, 10. We've looked at it many times. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And Zechariah 13, 6. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? King James Version says, in your hands. NIV says, in your body. What are these wounds between your arms, in your hands, or on your body, right? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Israel will be brought back to a place of blessing. God um, is not done with Israel, despite what anybody may say. 
God's got plans for Israel. Israel is going to be saved, right? But it will be when the Lord returns a second time, right? And that's what Stephen is saying here. Verse 37, Stephen says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for me a prophet like me. From your brethren, him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Stephen continues to show them the history, their history and pattern, right? The pattern in history of Israel has been to reject God's deliverer. And not only did they reject Moses, they purposely forgot about him. They purposely wrote him off. And in their hearts, they want to return to the bondage of Egypt. You know what? You remember, you know, they said, you know, hey, you know, it wasn't so bad in Egypt. I mean, come on. You know, I mean, there were lots of leeks. There was melons and cucumbers. I mean, do you remember? I mean, there was plenty of fish and garlic and onions, right? Those were the good old days, you know? Now, if you don't know, that's called revisionist history. <laughs> that's rewriting history, right? And they said, Aaron, why don't you make us a God? You know, they'll go before us, a God we can see, right? We don't want to walk by faith and obedience, Right? And they wanted to do, what they wanted to do was take matters into their own hands. That's always a mistake. Always a mistake. In hard times, Christians can be tempted to return to the world, to return to Egypt. You know, they often justify it by revising history. They say, you know, it wasn't that bad. There weren't any trials or troubles when I, when I was doing my own thing. Everything just flowed nice and easy. Like once I became a Christian, things got hard. Hey, Galatians 6, 7 through 9 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Luke 9, verse 62, Jesus said, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Those are sobering words. James said, James 4, 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Luke 17, 32, Jesus preached a three-word sermon that we would do well to remember. What did he say? Luke 17, 32, he said, remember Lot's wife. You know what? She looked back towards Sodom with longing in her heart, right? To her destruction. You know what? Our call as Christians is to press on, not to be static, not to place our heart or our lives in park, 
right? We're to be like Paul. He spoke regarding his heart's desire in Philippians 3. Turn over there with me real quick. Philippians 3 so we can look at it together. It's one of, it's one of my favorite passages of the Bible. Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. Are you there? Philippians 3, 7 through 14. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Hey, just a side note, just so you know it, verse 7, that was when he was initially saved. He counted all things lost for Christ. Verse 8 is a current confession. 20 years later, when he's in prison, I count all things lost now for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish or dung, refuge, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus uh, has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I, uh, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That was Paul's heart in eight verses. And how I pray that would be our heart too. In verse 40, Acts chapter 7, flip back there. Acts chapter 7, verse 40 saying to Abraham, make us gods to go before us for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Stephen is quoting here, and the religious leaders would know it. He's quoting from Amos chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. That's what he's quoting in verses 42 and uh, 43 here in Acts chapter 7. Amos said, did you offer sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikath, your king, and Chion, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourself. Therefore, I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. You know, the problem with Israel is they never dealt with the sin of the golden calf, right? And it led them into even greater idolatry. 
You know, sin doesn't die with old age. You know, the Bible likens sin to leprosy. It spreads until it consumes us. You know, it just keeps on going until, you know, again, we're totally consumed by it. Sin needs to be dealt with, right? Not just covered up. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joseph into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the day of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Keep in mind the context here. They accuse Stephen of speaking against the temple. Right? And Stephen quotes the Old Testament prophet saying, hey, God never asked for a temple because he doesn't dwell in temples. He's bigger than all that. And Stephen is saying to them, it's been God's heart all along to manifest his glory, to manifest his love and his mercy through the lives of his people, right? But Israel has always rejected that. In verse 51, Stephen says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Stephen says, hey, you guys are just like your fathers. There's no difference between the two of you, right? Now, as you can imagine, that made the religious leaders a little angry. That, they didn't swallow that very well, didn't take that criticism very well. And you know what? May we not be like these religious leaders. Because you know what? We can overlook the fact that we can be just like that. It's within our nature. God wants to do great things in our midst. He wants to do wonderful things in each of our lives. He wants to display his glory, his love, his mercy to the world through our lives. But too often... We can reject his will because it's not according to our plan. You know what? Oftentimes, because, you know, we can't see it or we can't understand it. We don't want to receive it by faith. Oftentimes, we may reject his will in our lives because it's just too hard. Or because it requires surrender on our part. We reject the things he wants to do because... We don't want to let go of our will and just trust in him. Sometimes it means, hey, we need to let go of the idols that we've allowed to creep into our heart. Comfort, money, entertainment, whatever it may be. Let's not be like that. Stephen says in verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Being stiff-necked refers to a horse that refuses to be guided by its master. 
Being uncircumcised speaks of a person who's not cut away the flesh of his heart, unwilling to listen, always resisting the Holy Spirit. May that never be said of us. But again, if that does describe your current walk with the Lord, you know, surrender this morning. The Lord wants you just to surrender. Let's not grieve the Holy Spirit in any way. Let's not put roadblocks or obstacles in the path of the Lord, impeding his work in our lives. In verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Stephen probably wanted to continue here. He probably wanted to go on through the claims and promises, prophecies of Jesus Christ. But at this point, the religious leaders, they've heard enough. They've had a gutful, right? And it says in 54, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. You know, I'm not really sure what that looks like. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe they show their teeth to him and they clench their jaw and they growl at him as they run towards him. I, I don't know. He says, but he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. By the way, did you notice the Trinity in verse 55, right? The Holy Spirit is mentioned there in that single verse, along with Jesus, who's at the right hand of God. Now, Ephesians, Colossians, and the book of Hebrews, they all teach us that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. His is a finished work, nothing more to be done. So he sat down at the right hand of God. But here in Acts 7, verse 56, we see Jesus standing, ready to welcome his servant home. You know what? That's such a beautiful picture to me. I look forward to the day the Lord welcomes me home. Stephen uh, started his defense with the God of glory, and now he finishes it with the glory of God, his face shining like an angel. You know, Psalm 90, verse 16 is a constant prayer of mine. I've been praying this for years. And, and it says 90, verse 16, Psalm 90, verse 16, says, let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. You know what? I want my kids I want my daughter, I want my sons, I want my son-in-law, I want my grandkids to see God's glory. Verse 57, then they cried out with a loud voice. They, they stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling in God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Saul, later to be known as Paul the Apostle, is here consulting to the death of Stephen. Later on, Saul is going to meet the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and the Lord is going to say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul will hear the Lord say, 
I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Kicking against the goads was an expression used to refer to someone who would not surrender to a superior power. Someone engaged in active resistance. And I believe that Saul's defense had an effect on Paul's life. I believe that Paul saw the Holy Spirit in Stephen. Paul saw his face shining like an angel. And his words weighed heavy on Paul's heart. And as Saul replayed Stephen's defense in his mind, he saw the unarguable wisdom. And I believe it played a role in Paul finally giving his life to Jesus Christ. I believe that that was the goads that Paul was kicking against. So let me ask you a question. What's too much to bear in order to bring one life to Christ? You know, Stephen suffered martyrdom, but he had an eternal effect on Paul. Stephen, you know, I mean, just think about it. Stephen lived his life for Christ and God used him. He served tables faithfully. He answered the call of God on his life. He was a man of the word. He was in the word. We talked about that last time we were together, pointing out how in this chapter, he quotes Old Testament passages from memory, right? Stephen was a man of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, and God worked many wonders and signs through him, right? What if Stephen said, Lord, you know, I'm really okay with just being a believer, just like every other believer. You know, I'm not interested in being anything more. You know, I just want to go to heaven. That's all I'm after. I don't think I need to know your word all that well. I just want to be average. You know, if that was Stephen's heart, he never would have had the witness he had. He never would have had such an effect on Paul's life. Right? who would later go on to write more books of the New Testament than any other author, right? Paul went on to plant churches. He mentored pastors. He preached to kings. He shared Jesus with countless numbers of people in and out of prison. Like Stephen, you may not see the effect your life has on others. But don't let that stop you from going for it with the Lord. You know, Stephen wasn't content with being an average Christian. And God did great things through him. Boy, I don't want to be content with being mediocre, just passing. I don't want to... Again, Stephen was probably very instrumental in Paul's conversion. And Paul witnessed the very glory of God reflected in Stephen's face. And I want that to be the testimony of my life. I don't want to settle for an average Christianity. You know, I don't want us to settle for average Christianity. I want to go for it with Jesus. Right? I want to see people uh, see him in my life. Right? I want to live a life that affects others for Jesus. That's my goal. And in verse 60, it says, Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. 
And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. No fear of death, right? 1 John 4, 18 says, perfect love casts out fear, right? It's interesting if you think about it. Stephen started out his life dead in his sins and trespasses. And Jesus gave him life. We share the same story. Stephen sought to make the most of his life here on earth for Jesus Christ, right? And he was received by Jesus after he fell asleep. You know, I'm frequently reminded, it runs through my my mind often, a poem that Pastor Chuck would often quote. I'm sure that each of you have heard it. He would say, one life to live, it'll soon be passed. Only that which we do for Jesus will last. You know what? Let's go for it with Jesus. Let's not let there be a boundary that that's too far. Let's go for it with Jesus. Let's up our game. Let's live for him with resolve. Right? Let's live for him. Uh, I think it was Nate Saint that said, with reckless abandonment. Right? Let's seek him with our whole heart. Let's hear from him and respond in obedience and service. Let's walk forward with him in faith, in surrendered faith, right? Let's trust him, trust in him. Let's rely on him. You know, and I believe that if we'll do that, I believe with all my heart, you, you know, I, I say it almost every week, but I believe if those are the things that we'll do, you know what? We'll see him do radical things in our lives. Right? We'll see his power in our lives and we'll see him do great things through us. You know, there was a time in my life, my pastor, Pastor Rob up in Oregon, and God uses him mightily. I mean, we would be going someplace and he would disappear for 20 minutes and we'd be like, gosh, where is Rob? We got to get someplace. And he'd show up and he'd say, man, I saw this guy and the Lord told me to tell him Jesus loved him. So I told him, and then I got to share with him. I got to lead him, with Christ, lead him to Christ. It was amazing. It was radical. We just like left in awe, like, Lord, would you, use, would you use me that way? And I began praying, Lord, how come I don't see you do radical things in my life? And the Lord spoke to my heart very quietly. He said, Gary, if you want to see radical things in your life, you need to live radically. That's the reality of it all. Our relationship right now with the Lord is right where we want it to be. We put the limitation on it. God will only take us so far. Wherever you're at, that's where you want to be. Let's go for it with Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength to see him do greater things in all of us. Let's pray. Father, that is my heart. For us as a church, for our family, for me, Lord, I don't want to settle for less. I don't want to settle for one bit, one ounce less than what you have for me, what you have for us. Lord, show yourself strong on our behalf, Lord. Use us mightily for your kingdom. Lord, I believe that you want to use us in ways that we can't imagine right now. If you were to tell us it, it would blow us away, we wouldn't be able to receive it. Lord, bring us to that place where you can do great and mighty things for your glory. 
for your kingdom, for your purposes, Lord. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be the opposite of stiff-necked. Help us to be surrendered. Help us to live for you. Lord, and if there is correction that needs to be made in our life, if there's a habit that's going on, if there's an idol that we've uh, allowed in, if there's a, you know, a, a, a desire that isn't from you, Lord, help each of us to surrender it now before you. And I would just encourage you guys right now, just as we're praying, if, if the Lord is speaking to your heart, just this is the time to just do business with the Lord and just ask for forgiveness. Ask for help. Ask for strength. Ask for vision. Enablement. Equipping, anointing. Lord, we love you. We love you, Lord. Have your way in us. Take us further than we've ever thought possible of going with you, Lord. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.